welcome to Big Business Insights, the mutual corporate podcast where we discuss human capital and benefit issues that concern all businesses, from up-and-coming companies to established corporate enterprises. Each episode focuses on one topic to bring you insights and help you make informed decisions for your business, your employees, and yourself. I'm Malus Ndlovu, and today's topic is something that has been on the minds of many of us in the retirement fund industry, as well as HR managers. That is, the rights of employers, trustee boards, and employees who are members when it comes to choosing a retirement fund. In other words, who gets to decide to move from one group retirement fund to another? Where does the power to transfer from one fund to another lie? I've invited Leanne van Veig, who's a director of ICCS Legal Services, to help us delve deeper into this. Hi, Leanne. Hi, Malusi. Thank you so much for having me today and giving me an opportunity to talk about my favorite subject. I'm really looking forward to this. I know that you're a legal expert on these matters and on pension fund regulations. Can you explain to our listeners why this area of law is so close to your heart? You know, when you're at university, nobody says, right, I'm going to do retirement funds law, right? <laughs> you're always going to do LA law and appear in court, etc. But I find my, myself in this space and I've really loved it. One, because, and um, Old Mutual and you particularly, Malusi, would know this, is you get the opportunity to affect so many people's lives. Yes. You know, all the members of retirement funds out there, hopefully in a positive way. In addition, this area of law is so complex. You know, touches on so many other areas of the law, like administrative law, constitutional law, mm. labor law, goes the list goes on. And um, it is ever-changing. So I'm never bored, and I just love this area of law. I must say, the complexity is always surprising to me. But let's start with the most basic question. Who decides which fund employees belong to. Yeah. And it's not a simple question to answer, Malusi, and, and you will know that having worked in the industry. You know, we've got this complex ecosystem out there, and I think that today we're going to try and unpack the different components of that and understand who um, makes a decision about what and what their roles are. But I think often it's not simple because the role players stray outside of their lanes. You know, I think that we need to understand what is our role and take the actions that we need to make and let everyone else do what they need to do. I also think that this question becomes complex for the reason that control over a retirement fund is control over its assets. Mm. And often that is what people are seeking to control. And of course, the assets of the fund are the deferred wages of employees who are the members. But talking about the member, what is the role of the member and what are the employer's powers in relation to determining that employees must transfer from one fund to another. Yeah. So I think let's start uh, perhaps with this interaction between the fund and members. You know, the fund sits at the heart of all of these um, decisions. And the reason I say that is, and something that you would know, but if you look at a masterclass in retirement funds, the first thing they teach you is a retirement fund is corporate personality. It's its own legal entity. Mm. It's separate to the employer. It's separate to the trade union, mm. as an example. And it is represented by the board. And that board is there to make decisions for the fund. 
A whole lot of law, common law, statutes, etc., applies when they are making those decisions. But one of the most important aspects of a board is their independence. Then we've, we add the member into the mix. So now we've got the fund, we add the member into the mix. And the common misconception out there, and in fact, I, th- I heard this at a conference recently again from a trustee, is that we are there to act on the mandate of members. And my response to that is always no, you don't. You are there to act in the best interests of the fund and the member, but you're not there to act on their mandate. Mm. You, that would be a cop-out. Mm. No, mm. your powers and your obligations are much more extensive than that and don't include acting on the mandate. And of once you members. sit there, you're no longer a representative of your constituency. Exactly. You're there as a member of the board. And that's right. And we often see that with, for example, pensioner members um, of boards where they think that they are there to represent pensioners and they're not. They're there mm. to represent the fund and its members. So, there, you know, there have been quite a lot of cases around this. And the reason for that is that um, we are not always focused on the rules of a fund. And the rules of the fund are just so important. You know, that is its constitution. That is the way that it must be managed. Um, and members are only entitled to what's in the rules. And often those rules will reserve powers mm. for the employer, which allow it to take certain decisions. And we'll talk about that when we talk about employers. Um, I mentioned cases, perhaps one, um, Lucy, that would be interesting is a 2022 case and decided by the full bench of the High Court. Mm. So three judges of the High Court. And there it involved the termination of an administrator. So the fund terminated one administrator, appointed another administrator, and there was this concern by certain of the board members around the decision making in relation to this. So um, this included, in fact, a lot of allegations around fraud and corruption mm. um, by the chairperson and by the principal officer, as an example. And it, it ended up finding its way into the court. So the court had to have a look at the powers of a board mm. and the sort of things it has to take into account when making a decision. And of course, these are exactly the same things that a board's going to take into account when it makes a decision to transfer, right? Yes. Okay, so one of the things that's said is that the public has an interest in the lawful administration of pension funds. And when they talk about administration here, they're talking about administration by the trustee boards themselves. And pension fund trustees must administer money and trust on behalf of members of the fund. And um, funds are carefully regulated and controlled by statute and the regulator. So here you can see the, the court pulling out this very important trust component. Mm-hmm. Um, members must be able to trust um, the boards of the funds, and that's why they've got this extensive legislation that applies to them when they are making decisions. So the sorts of thing the court said is they looked at administrative law, they looked at common law, like cases, they looked at the Pension Funds Act, and they said that when you're making these decisions, you've got to act intravaries. Now, that is just a very fancy Latin term for within your powers. Mm-hmm. And those powers can be sourced in law and the rules. And why I keep emphasizing the rules is it's going to become very important for HR managers and employers. And we'll see that as we unroll our discussion today. 
the other thing was you've got to act for a rational purpose. You've got to act independently. You've got to act in terms of your fiduciary duties, etc. And the ones that I want to reiterate today from that court case are to avoid your conflicts of interest, mm. uh, to be independent, and of course, you are bound by the rules. And this is where I want to say those rules will often give the employer the powers to transfer between funds. So it will actually reserve that power for employers. And that's very important because while the fund is a separate legal entity, as you've outlined, and it's got its own rules and so on, it is a vehicle that's used by the employer to provide certain benefits for its employees. So who decides what benefits the employees are entitled to? Yeah, and that's such a great question. And I tell you why, because it goes to the heart of the um, contractual arrangements. So as we've been talking, we've been adding to the parties in this uh, web and in this uh, ecosystem, if I can put it that way. So we've started with the fund, we added in members and employers, and then we added in the employer now. Mm. So when we look at the employer, we know that board members and members are bound by the rules of the fund. So whatever the rules say members are entitled to, that's what they're entitled to. But then we add the employer into the mix and suddenly it's a bit more complex because as you say, um, employers have promised members certain benefits. Now that promise can be found in the employment contract. Mm-hmm. So it's very important that our employment contracts align with the rules of the fund. Because if the employer promises something in an employment contract and that is not fulfilled through the fund, the employer still has that promise Mm. to members Mm. or its employees and must fulfill it. So, you know, very important that we have alignment in relation to what the rules promise and what employers uh, promise in terms of the employment agreement. And then perhaps just to mention, so there's no fiduciary relationship between an employee and an employer. That's a a relationship of good faith, as Mm. you know. And often we find that uh, employees or members are appointed or elected onto a board. Now, they find themselves on the board and often the question that is asked is, well, am I here to represent members? You know, what, what is my role here? as a a member elected uh, trustee. And there we must remember that it is, of course, to be independent. But employer-appointed trustees equally must remember this. Mm. You know, they're not there to take instruction from the employer. They're not there to, you know, follow the employer's mandate. They're not there to be the employer's voice Mm. on the fund. You know, they're there just as any other trustee to to be independent. Mm. So that independence requirement is there for all the trustees, regardless of how you got to the board. Once you're in the room, you are there as a trustee bound by the same rules, bound by the same standards of conduct and expectations. Yeah, and I love that uh, metaphor that you've put of once you're in the room. You know, and I remember uh, an old um, manager of mine when I was very young saying to me, when you're a trustee, you enter a room and you take one hat off Mm. and you put another hat on. So as you go into that room, you're wearing your trustee hat. Mm. So now we're in the room, we are trustees, we're wearing the right hats and there are reserved matters that only the employer can make a decision on at the same time. Yes. Let's zoom in on that a little bit. Where does the power to transfer 
members from one fund to another fund lie? Mm. Usually you will find that power set out in the rules of the fund as well as in your contract of employment. And um, this is very important for HR managers to look at. You know, what do our rules say and um, of the funds and what do our contracts say? Because you want them to both say this is um, it is the employer's right to choose the fund. Right. It is employers right to nominate or name the fund in which they will participate for the, for their particular employees. And in fact, we've had um, a few cases on this, um, Lucy, that um, perhaps would be useful to mention mm. um, now. So the first one is a 2018 case. And this particular case was a, um, a labor court case. And in this case, when the employer decided to participate in an umbrella fund, the unions alleged that that was actually a unilateral change to the terms and conditions of employment. This is despite the fact that the employment contracts for every employee specifically provided for that employer to nominate or name the fund um, that that it was going to participate in. Mm. So the court looked at this and it confirmed the fact that because the contracts of employment already allowed for the employer to say, well, this is the fund I'm going to participate in, that it would not be a unilateral change to the terms and conditions of employment. In fact, they were just doing what the contract allowed. Yes. Yeah. yes, yes. So, so that was very important. And in fact, in that case, um, even um, though the wording talked about participating in a fund established for the benefits of employees, the court actually interpreted that to include participating in an umbrella fund as well. Mm, which is quite mm, interesting. Mm, mm, so there was that case. Then there was a 2020 case, um, which was a high court case. And in this case, and we're going to come back to this case, I suspect, Malusi, in our conversations, because there's just so much to learn from it. But in this case, the court recognized that it was the sole prerogative of the employer to determine and vary which fund the, mems- the members belong to. And this time, not because of what was in contracts of employment, but because of what was in the rules of the fund. Okay. okay. So this was a different reference point for the courts, but coming to the same conclusion. Exactly. Yeah. So it's very important that um, HR managers look at both, mm-hmm. you know, what our rules say and what our contracts say, because um, the courts are always going to come back to what are you contractually bound by or what are you bound by because of the rules? Yes. Yes. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I do know that our constitution provides for the right of freedom of association. So, if a member wants to participate in a different retirement fund or wants to stay in a retirement fund that the employer wants to transfer them out of, where does this right to freedom of association yeah. uh, come in? Yeah, and I remember um, when I was a junior legal advisor, this came up, which is many years ago, Melissa, I must tell you. <laughs> so when this um, case came up, I remember that it had already been argued, you know, within legal circles, you know, is the fact that um, employers re- require members to belong to a particular fund, um, is the employer limiting the member's right to freedom of association mm. as protected by the Constitution? And of course, um, in terms of all a constitutional rights, no constitutional right is absolute and unlimited, right? Of it can, yeah, there are always limits to it. And 
In fact, this was uh, dealt with in um, the case of South African Municipal Workers Union National Provident Fund, and it was a Supreme Court of Appeal case. And in fact, that High Court case we mentioned before actually looked at this at the same time and, of course, agreed with what the Supreme Court of Appeal had said sure. because it's a higher court, right? Mm. So um, the Supreme Court of, of Appeal said in this case that the compulsory membership of, of a pension fund only holds implications for the members themselves and thus does not constitute a limitation on the right to freedom of association. And that 2022 High Court case then said that when the fund tried to argue that this was a limitation on of its rights of members' right to freedom of association, that that was irrelevant. It was not um, relevant when you're talking about a transfer from one fund to another fund. Strong wording indeed. Yeah. Indeed. We'll come back to the member just now. I want to introduce another stakeholder, um, which is um, often there in the workplace, unions. Yes. What, what influence do unions have over the board of a fund and very specifically in particular relation to a transfer from one fund to another? Yeah. And this is so interesting, Malusi, and there's been so, a lot of case law around it. Um, and it was, it was debated often before the cases came around. Perhaps before we get into cases, just to mention a few basics. Mm -hmm. So firstly, the fund trustees are not bound by any of the decisions of a trade union. Okay. So unless the rules give the trade unions a specific power. Sure. Um, they are not bound by those decisions. So that the union has no direct powers over the board's decisions. Mm. Um, unless, of course, as we say, the rules give them that specific power. Can I just interrupt there? I'm yes. assuming that um, when we, when you make that point, it's, it, it excludes union-sponsored funds where there may be reserved rights for the union and, and so on. Uh, is that correct? Yes. So it would um, exclude union-sponsored funds. And in certain circumstances, it would also exclude collective bargaining council funds sure. or statutory funds, you know, where there is a statutory power that the trade union has with respect to that fund. Mm. So here we're talking about our normal um, commercial umbrella funds or our standalone funds set up by employers. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that is a good point. Then perhaps just to note that um, where you have a, a, an employee that is or and a member who is elected onto a board, and they are also a trade union official or a trade union member or um, a trade union employee, as an example, mm -hmm. the same rules apply. You have to take your union hat off as you go into the room. Mm -hmm. um, and you are then there to represent the fund. So you cannot act on the instructions of a trade union. Um, you have to maintain your independence. And that is a legal requirement. You have to do that by law. Mm -hmm. If you are not doing that, then you are not complying with your legal duties. Mm -hmm. I can see how that line can be. Uh, quite uh, difficult to draw because part of what a trade union does is to negotiate benefits on behalf of the employees. And if the fund is a vehicle to provide those benefits, it's easy to then yeah, assume the that uh, yeah. there's, there's influence over there as well. But mm -hmm. thank you for, for clarifying that. 
There's been some useful um, cases in this regard, and I thought I might mention them because sometimes they're quite interesting. And this was a um, high court case in 2008, so it was an old case. As I said, this came up when I was a very mm. junior legal advisor. So this case was seminal in that it changed and clarified the thinking around trade union involvement with respect to funds. This particular case was in relation to the recognition of the independence of trustees. So in this case, the member trustee concerned was actually also a union employee. Mm. Okay. And what the court said, and it was very clear, it said, um, it accepts that um, there's nothing unlawful or improper about the union expressing its views about what it thinks trustees should do or trying to persuade trustees to do certain things. However, it said, it is my view unlawful for the union to seek to compel member trustee to take mandates, which they are then required to implement for the union. Um, it went on to say it's, it is also unlawful for the union to threaten to take disciplinary steps against those trade union employees if they didn't then follow the union sure. mandate. Mm-hmm. So um, this was this was quite an important case, and it sort of clarified the fact that union employees who became member trustees had to maintain that independence and couldn't um, simply take a trade union mandate and implement it. Sure, sure, sure. Then um, there was that other 2022 case, the High Court case that we were talking about earlier, of, of the full bench High Court case, and that case was about trying to block the transfer from one fund to another fund. In this case, this blocking of the transfer was completely contrary to the rules of the fund, where the rules of the fund allowed the employer to make the choice in relation to transfer. So um, in this case, the member trustees of the fund um, were allied to the union view, if I can put it that way, and the court saw through this. So the court um, specifically said it saw through this and it says it said that although the employee member trustees claimed they were independent of the union, the objections that they raised were exactly the same as those that were raised by the union, as had been seen in the previous case. And the fund had quite evidently done nothing to protect the interests of those members who actually did want to transfer. Yes, yes. Um, And so importantly here, and this is something that trustees need to be aware of, is that the court said here, Um, I'm going to give you a few days to tell me why I shouldn't find against you in your personal capacity. That's very strong. Very strong, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've established the rights and responsibilities who can make what decision in relation to a transfer. Let's talk about the transfer process itself, which is um, very well laid out in Section 14 of the Pension Funds Act. What are the minimum requirements that need to be met in order for a transfer of membership from one fund to another to happen uh, once the right decision maker has made that decision? Yeah, so if we think about this, perhaps with our HR hat on Mm. at the moment, instead of our fund hat, because, you know, funds have got a lot more responsibilities in relation to Section 14 than perhaps the employer does. Mm. Um, But Section 14, as you say, and we're talking about Section 14 of the Pension Funds Act here, um, does state that an application has to be made to the FSCA before a transfer from one fund can take place and before those assets can move. Um, So that application is set out in what is called a contract conduct standard. Mm-hmm. So the FSCA issues conduct standards. And what is important about these conduct standards is that they are law. 
So they're a form of subordinate legislation, which means we have to comply with them. Mm. Just because they are not in the legislation doesn't mean they're opinions. They are law themselves. Yes, that's right, Melusi. So, for example, they actually go off to Parliament, mm. and Parliament approves them before they're published by the FSCA. So um, we do have a conduct standard about Section 14 transfers, <laughs> and um, it's not extremely different to the old directive that used to be in place, but there are some cha- some um, differences. And perhaps to note this is that when a Section 14 is happening, the conduct standard requires communication out to members. Okay. So this communication has to be done um, by the funds, um, that are, you know, transferring. But what is important from an HR point of view is that very clearly we need to align any communication from the employer with communication uh, from the funds. We don't want them to be saying different things. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And now, of course, that communication must give members enough information to be able to understand um, what the changes will be. The, um, it usually involves a comparison of, of benefits. And importantly, they have to understand enough to say, I object to this transfer. Um, and that perhaps is something we should understand. So where a member says, I object to this transfer, the, the board of the fund has to give all members 30 days okay. to lodge an objection, um, and they can do it within that 30 days. And then where an objection hasn't been um, resolved um, and the member's still not happy, then those objections go off with the application to the FSCA. Okay, okay. So the FSCA then looks at those and makes a decision about um, a number of things. And this is the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, the, the regulator of that's the exactly industry. That's exactly right. Yes, mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. that's right. Now, when it gets to the Financial Sector Conduct Authority or the FSCA, the FSCA has a discretion to allow that transfer or not. But it is, again, a limited discretion. So it's the section 14 of that tells them what to look for, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to look at whether it's reasonable and equitable. You need to look at reasonable benefit ex- expectations in terms of the rules. You know, are they going to be um, losing out on benefits, et cetera? Um, and there's lots of case law around that. But um, I think the point I want to make here is that even if there are objections, this transfer can still go forward. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. You know, and the, the courts have looked at this and said it, it is only reasonable that that is the case. Otherwise, you could have one member objecting and the whole transfer comes to it a It gets held up, health. yes, of course, of course. Yeah. I see now why you said this is complex because <laughs> the, the employer's got the reserved rights. They make the decision. However, once that gets kicked off, there are obligations on the trustees themselves in terms of communication. Yes. And at the same time, Time, the members can lodge objections. Yeah. Do you have examples of when objections have been actually upheld by the FSCA or and what grounds they gave for upholding those objections? Yes, I, I think it's very seldomly that the FSCA will get to the stage where um, it'll say, you know, this specific member has got an objection um, and we are going to hold up a transfer because of the specific member. Sure. I think that what they would be looking for is more objections that are common to more members of the fund and why those objections are there. Um, but again, um, you know, the FSCA cannot look at an objection that says, well, we don't, we simply don't like the provider, mm-hmm. you know, or um, our union prefers this fund. 
Mm-hmm. And we've seen that being rejected by the FSCA as mm-hmm. an example. Mm-hmm. Um, it is more about um, are they getting um, an equitable and reasonable uh, deal out of this transfer? So that's what they're looking for. They're not looking at, you know, specifics. I'm about to retire as a member, so I don't want to move. Sure. You know, that's not what they're looking for. And they mm-hmm. would, they would, um, I, I expect, um, not be influenced by that type of issue. Um, they, they're looking for more macro issues, if I can put it that way. Of course. Of course. And you, you mentioned that one of the tests that the FSCA applies is um, reasonable benefit expectations and equity, especially in the comparison of, of benefits. I imagine in our defined contribution world, that comparison of benefits becomes quite tricky because what you put in is what you get out as a member. So how does that comparison work? What is the litmus test for saying that the benefits are equitable from one fund to another? Yeah, and I think that what we need to clarify here is what we're not talking about here is the transaction. You know, for example, there's been a purchase and sale of a company and uh, employees are going across as a going concern or something like that. That's not what we're talking about because sure. there there's a whole um, different test in terms of Section 197 of the Labor Relations Act. Um, so so that's not what we're talking about here. Here we are talking about an employer that there's no transaction, there's simply moving funds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there um, you would have to go back to what was promised by the employer in terms of contracts of employment. So if the employer has simply said, um, you will become, uh, you will be required to be a member of the fund that we participate in, that is the promise. You know, there's, it's not promising a defined benefit is not promising a yes. defined contribution benefit. Yes. It's just saying you must belong and, and it'll probably set out something about contributions. Sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, they say that lawyers like conflict and, <laughs> and they encourage <laughs> conflict. I imagine if you are uh, an HR manager sitting at home and listening to this, you, you, you may be thinking, geez, this sounds like a, a very complex thing, lots of stakeholders to manage, etc. But um, I assume that the way for these things to happen is usually with consultation of stakeholders, despite what the law says and the reserved rights and who can make those decisions yeah. just to make the process uh, simpler and easier. And, and that is so true, Malusi. And um, not all lawyers like conflict. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it can be lucrative, but they're not, you know, not everyone is wired that way. But um, perhaps just to say that um, it's so important for stakeholders to come together. Yes. You know, and to understand um, how this is going to affect uh, members and employees at the end of the day. And that should be everyone's goal. You know, how are we going to get through this smoothly um, with the least um, negative impact on members? Um, and that requires people to start early. So that allows, yes. you know, queries and communication and objections and applications to take place in good course. Um, involve the experts. That's what I always say. So, for example, don't try and do your own comparison of benefits. Yes. You know what I mean? And speak to your consultant as well and understand the process. And why I say that is HR managers are not there to understand everything about retirement benefits. It's a specialized area so it's a specialized area of law as well so when it when uh, this sort of thing happens and you're moving funds it often requires some sort of training in relation to hr so they understand it um, and then you need to bring your experts in to smooth the process and make sure you're doing what you need to do thank you very much leanne for your insights 
Thank you so much, Melusia, and, and for allowing me the opportunity to talk about um, my favorite subject today. Thank you. And thank you for listening to today's episode. Follow the Old Mutual Corporate Big Business Insights podcast and toggle on notifications to be alerted when a new episode is live with more expert discussions aimed at making running your business just a little bit easier. To find out more about Old Mutual Corporate, visit oldmutual.co.za forward slash corporate. Old Mutual, do great things every day. Old Mutual Life Assurance Company South Africa Limited is a licensed FSP and life insurer.